0: 66.
1: 6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66
0: books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from
1: outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Mister completes his session entitled The Patriarchs of Israel.
0: I think this is fascinating because I see the Holy Spirit diddling with the text in such a way it doesn't destroy the meaning of the text as we read it. We understand that Abram and Isaac came down, the, the four guys took their donkey and went home. But that's not what it says. The reference to him is removed because by doing so it fits the type. It fits the type. There are many places in the scripture where the, the, the narrative, what actually happened, is adjusted just a little bit to fit a larger purpose that God has in communicating with us. One integrated design. The New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. Augustine first noticed that. Well, the descendants of Abraham. We talk about Sarah, Haggai, and Keturah. Sarah had, of course, Isaac. Hagar had Ishmael. Keturah had a whole bunch of characters that become the sons of Keturah. And we have the, what what are generally called the Arabs. Uh, Midian, Midian, and and the rest of these guys. The uh, Jokshan descendants become the Saudi Arabians, if you will. The sons of Midian, were the Bedouins, pretty much. So we'll go on here. Under Ishmael, they had twelve princes under Ishmael. When Isaac marries Rebekah, they have two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob will be the son of the, the Spirit, Esau the son of the flesh. Let's talk about Jacob a little bit. Yaakov means God protect. Akev means heel. The word really means, uh, it's very close to Akob, the deceitful or sly or insidious one. So there's a pun involved here. So you can translate the word Yaakov or Jacob as the one who grabs the heel, which is what he did when he was born. He grabbed the heel of his older brother, or one who trips up. Jacob will be a heel catcher. He's going to be the conniver. He's going to be the con artist. If God can justify Jacob, He can justify any of us. In Romans chapter 9, Paul points out that for the children being not yet born, referring to these two kids, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that called. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, and it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau have I hated. And God sees this coming, because Esau will have disdain for his birthright. Jacob coveted. So it's interesting that Esau after being rejected by us, this, will marry the Ishmaelites. So the descendants of Ishmael and Esau, and also the descendants of Keturah, will commingle. And they commingle to become what we generically call Arabs today. The word Arabs is, unfortunately, a misnomer. It's not a geographic term. It can be. But it's generally an ethnic term. It's interesting there is no Arab today that can trace his lineage back to Ishmael, because none of these tribes maintain distinctiveness. They cross-married, intermarried, so whether it's Esau or Ishmael, you're dealing with then the enemies of the people of God, the enemies of Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, and have been throughout history. So when we're dealing with tensions in the Middle East, you're dealing with things that are several thousand years old, enmities that began between Esau and Jacob, in fact, maybe even earlier with Ishmael and the rest. The Lord said, two nations are in thy womb, two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. Esau was the firstborn, and uh, Jacob purchase his birthright from Esau. He comes back from a hunting trip and he's very famished so he agrees. To, he didn't care for his birthright so he sold it to Jacob. And then there's the formal endorsement of that in effect by the father that Jacob obtains by deceit. And Jacob's going to learn a lesson about deceit uh, before it's all over too because his sons are going to deceive him about the death of Joseph and so forth. There are many ways to study your Bible, as you've probably gathered already. Obviously, you can go archaeological or historically, what actually happened from history or from archaeological finds, and that's one way, that's one level of understanding. You can look at the theological or doctrinal issues. What does this tell us about our relationship with God and His requirements? There's also comparative studies. You can compare verses with Old and New Testaments, and that'll always be beneficial. And then there's a whole other form of study that you might call devotional, very personal, where you just bathe in the Word of God itself and see what God speaks to you about it. And those all intermarry with each other. They're not distinctive. a devotional thing, typically, it starts with observation. Who did what, where, and when, and why. And then uh, the interpretation is the why, the primary implications of what you see. And then of course, after all that, there's an application. You have to answer the so what question. You know, how does this affect me? So that's what the summary. All participants in this narrative were at fault. Isaac attempted to thwart God's plan by blessing Esau. Esau broke the oath he had made with Jacob. Rebekah and Jacob tried to achieve God's blessing by deception. Their victory would heap hatred and separation. Rebecca would never see Jacob again after he splits from from that deception with her. And Jacob alone did not destroy the family. Parental preference did. And lots of lessons there. Parental favoritism is part of it, which tore their family apart. Spiritual insensitivity, the reliance on the senses rather than spiritual discernment, and the whole role of deception. Jacob's only hesitancy was his fear that he would be cursed instead of blessed. That's the reason he, he hesitated. Not for any deeper reason. He would later learn that blessings are given by God and not gained by deceit. So there's lots of lessons here if you take the time to really wrestle. And much of this is just wrestling to the end of self. Jacob's cheated by his uncle Laban. The twelve tribes are born to the two brides he has plus their two handmaids. We'll get into that in a little bit. He will return to the land. He'll wrestle. He literally will wrestle till he gets to the end of himself. When he acknowledges who he really is, he will limp for the rest of his life. Then Jacob uh, is finally reconciled to Esau. There's sin in the family when Dinah is revenged. I won't get into all that here. And he returns to Bethel. And then Benjamin is born, but Rachel dies in childbirth. So Benjamin is a very special child to Jacob. So we have the patriarchs. Abraham, through Sarah, uh, through Hagar has Ishmael, but through Sarah has Isaac. And then uh, through Rebekah, he has Jacob and Esau. But under Jacob, he has two wives, Rachel and Leah. Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, the first four children of Jacob and Leah. Rachel is barren, so she's upset by that. So she gets the idea, which was the practice in those days. She could have a substitute wife give her husband her handmaid to be a proxy wife, so to speak. So Bilhah then has Dan and Naphtali. Leah sees that going on and says, that's a pretty good idea, I'll do the same thing. So she gives him her handmaid, Zilpah, through whom he has Gad and Asher. And by this time, Rachel finally has a child, Joseph. And because Jacob loved Rachel more than life itself, and so Joseph, her firstborn, becomes especially endeared to Jacob, and and we'll get into all that uh, shortly. Leah meanwhile has Issachar and Zebulun, and then finally Rachel has one more child, Benjamin, but dies in that childbirth. There you have the 12 tribes. But I should mention here probably, so you don't get confused, there are more than 12 tribes. They're actually 13, in a sense. Because Joseph, when he's down in Egypt, will have two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob will adopt them as his own. So if you want to have 12 tribes, you can use the 12 I just mentioned, but if you want to leave one out for some reason, for example, if you want the marching order, knowing that Levi is a priest and doesn't participate in the military, you leave Levi out, you still can get 12 tribes because by leaving Levi out, instead of Joseph you have Manasseh and Ephraim. So you've got an alphabet of 13 to pick 12 from, so to speak. When you get to the book of Revelation, you want to leave the tribe of Dan out. The tribes are listed 20 times in the Bible, each time in a different order, and each time there's somebody different that's left out, but you always still have 12. For various reasons, one or the other may be left out, but you make up the difference by jockeying between Joseph, whether it's Joseph as a singular, or Manasseh and Ephraim as a pair. Do you follow me? So if you have thirteen, you can leave one out and still have a dozen, if you will. The tribe of Dan is conspicuous in his omission, several places in the Scripture, not the least of which is the book of Revelation 7, chapter 7, and Dan's left out. Ephraim isn't mentioned either, but it's inferred with the back of the hand, because Manasseh is mentioned, and then the tribe of Joseph is subsequently mentioned, which obviously would be left, would be Ephraim. Dan is not mentioned. You still have the twelve tribes. So you want to watch that, because there's lessons in each one. Just be sensitive to it at this point. In succession, uh, Reuben was the firstborn. He would be the natural heir, but he was disavowed because he had illicit relationships with his father's concubine. And Simeon and Levi were sort of out of the running because they, of their extremes. In, uh, at Shechem there's an incident where they get unusually violent. That means Judah was next in line, so Judah is the royal line, and Judah is very key through the rest of the Scripture. Not always right, makes mistakes, but nevertheless, the royal line. And Joseph is the favorite, is firstborn from Rachel. Jacob's favorite, and he, of course, has his adventures in Egypt, as we'll see shortly. It's interesting to notice how often God bypasses the firstborn. Seth over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau, Judah and Joseph ahead of Reuben, Moses ahead of Aaron, Aaron was, was older than Moses, David ahead of all his brothers. So, firstborn is a basic rule, but God is very sovereign to get around it when He feels like it. And it's very interesting. There's a strange chapter in chapter 38 that will be skipped by most commentators. It's sort of a sordid event that you sort of wonder, what on earth is it here for? And that's Judah's sin with Tamar. It's kind of complicated, but I'll try to simplify it. We're now going to look at the period of just before the Exodus. Judah marries a gal by the name of Shua and has three sons, a gal by the name of Er, Onan, and Shelah. For Er, there is Tamar as his wife. But Er displeases God, so God takes him out of the picture. That leaves Tamar without a husband. There is a law of Leverite marriage. What is supposed to happen if a husband dies without leaving Issue. It's the implied obligation of a brother to raise up Issue to the widow. And so Judah instructs Onan to take Tamar uh, to raise up Issue. Onan declines to do that. He has sexual intercourse with her, but he spills, he he withdraws and spills the seed on the ground. And that offends God, so God takes him out of the picture. So Tamar now has got that twice. Judah is looking this over, and he's not too excited about giving Shelah to Tamar. He's just lost two of his three sons. But he tells Tamar to, in effect, set aside. When Shelah's old enough, you'll have Shelah, but he doesn't, doesn't follow through on it. As time goes on, Tamar realizes that she's been you know, put on the back burner, so to speak. So she does a strange thing. She poses as a prostitute. Apparently, it was the, in those times, the prostitute would wear a veil. She both dresses and sets herself up on a hilltop as a prostitute, knowing that Judah would come by there, and entices Judah into having relations. He doesn't realize it's his daughter-in-law. You follow me? He uh, leaves some pledges that he would pay her. He'd give her a kid from the flock. Until he can get the flock, he gives her his signet and, and his staff as a pledge. And then later on, he gets his best buddy to take this kid back there to give, to retrieve his things. By then, she's shut down, gone back home and put on her normal dress. So the guy can't find her. There's no prostitute on this hilltop anymore. There's nobody here. He goes back, and Judah's puzzled by the whole thing, but doesn't know quite what to do about it. Then he finds out, a few months later, that Tamar is pregnant, and is he livid? She's going to be burnt. And she comes up, this is fine, uh, whose signet is this, and whose staff is this? And He realizes what's happened, and he blames himself, not her. Because he recognizes that the reason this happened was because he didn't keep his promise and give her Sheila as a husband, he says, "My sin is greater than hers." So it's a very sordid, strange story. But the reason it's important, she has twins, Zara and Faraz. And Zara gets born first, but his hand comes out first. They put a red thing on it, and then. The other one comes out first, so it's, he's a breech of birth, in effect. But Pharez is regarded as the heir, and he is then in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Because of Judah through Tamar, Pharez is in the royal line. That's why it's here at all, okay? Zerah, by the way, by some non-biblical sources, I understand, may have been the one that succeeded Joseph when Joseph died in Egypt, and becomes the leader of the Hyksos, the shepherd kings that later migrate away before uh, all the rest of it. But anyway, the reason I'm getting into this is because, I want you to understand this concept of the Leverite marriage. is very important later in the Scripture. It comes from the word, not, not from Levitical, liver, from the Levir, a husband's brother. It's codified in the Torah in Deuteronomy 25. It also deals with the role of the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ is going to play that role. We'll talk about that when we get to the book of Ruth in great depth. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer in this role. And it'll deal with the ultimate redemption which was occurring in Revelation 5. But I want to show you something that people miss in the text of Genesis 38. You say, what is this weird story doing right in the middle of this really neat story coming with Joseph and all that? Well, it turns out that at 49 letter intervals, we have the name of Boaz. That's kind of curious. At 49 letter intervals, you also have the name of Ruth. At 49 letter intervals, again, you have the name of Obed. And at 49 letter intervals, you have Yeshe, which is, we would say, Jesse. And then at 49 letter intervals, you have the name of David. What's interesting about this is you have Boaz, Ruth, Obed, Jesse, and David. That is the family tree of David in 49 letter intervals. They're in chronological order centuries before the book of Samuel and the whole of the monarchy altogether. This is, in the book, these, this is in the Torah. This is in the five books of Moses. You need to understand, this is in Genesis. After that comes Exodus and all of that. Then comes Leviticus. Then comes Numbers. Then Deuteronomy. Moses dies. Then Joshua. And they conquer the land. After that generation, you have the book of the Judges. And after the book of Judges, you've got Samuel, which finally gets to the house of David. The house of David, the family tree, of course, is the family tree of the King of the universe, Jesus Christ. But how astonishing it is to find this anticipated in the very structure of the text in Genesis 38. God's fingerprints are all over this thing. There is no way that Moses could know in advance the genealogy of David. Samuel didn't know about it until the time came. He got the youngest brother, and when he goes out to the selection and so forth, you'll find this family tree. Here we'll also discover it. It's hidden, tucked away, if you will, in the book of Ruth. Kind of fun stuff. Well, then we get to the career of Joseph, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, because you can just sit there and read it. It's very readable. Joseph, of course, is favored. He's the firstborn of Rachel. Has the coat of many colors, as it's often called. Uh, he dreams of us, he has these strange dreams of ascendancy. The sheaves, the sun, the moon, the stars, bow to him, and so forth. And he's sold into slavery by his brothers. They were going to kill him, but uh, they got talked out of that. When he gets to Egypt, he's imprisoned by Potiphar because his wife tried to put the make on him, and, and he wouldn't do it, so she spread the lies. I think Potiphar knew she was lying, or he would have had him killed, but he nevertheless he had to do something to save faith, so he's imprisoned. While in prison, he interprets dreams of the baker and the wine steward. Again you got the bread and wine theme there, the butler and the baker. Then when Pharaoh has some dreams that he can't interpret, they remember, oh, there's this guy in prison that knows how to do that. And he, of course, interprets the famous dreams of Pharaoh. The seven fat cows, seven lean cows, the seven plump heads of grain, and the seven thin heads of grain, pointing out there's going to be seven good years, then seven famine years. Joseph, of course, is called to interpret this. And because he interprets it to Pharaoh's pleasure, Pharaoh puts him in charge. He becomes the prime minister of the world. Pharaoh ruled the world in those days. Joseph is the prime minister to administer this during the plump days to get ready for the famine. That When the famine does hit, it brings the brothers there to beg for food, and he doesn't. they don't know who he is. Incredible drama. You can just read it. You don't have to add to it. He keeps Simeon as a hostage to get Benjamin to come. On their second visit, Benjamin is with him. And one of the most touching scenes in the entire literature is when Joseph finally reveals to his brothers that the one that they sold into slavery. They, they thought was dead. Is now the prime minister of the world? You've got to be kidding! And he loves them, and he, he, he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And he recognizes that all this was to preserve the family for God's purposes. And Jacob and the rest of the family migrate to Egypt, and that's how they get into Egypt until Joseph dies, and that sets the stage, of course, for the book of Exodus. Before the book closes in Genesis 49, Jacob, as he's dying, prophesies over each of the twelve tribes. Little enigmatic riddles that you want to study. And I'll just give you one of them to give you an example. He speaks of Judah. He says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, the Messiah comes, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. It's very interesting to know that The scepter refers to the tribal identity and the right to apply and enforce Mosaic laws, namely capital punishment. Shiloh is a term meaning it it, it belongs to the Messiah. It turns out Herod the Great dies, uh, Antipater was murdered, Then Herod Archelaus is appointed by Caesar Augustus. He's dethroned and banished. Caponius is appointed procurator in about 6 to 7 A.D. There's a transfer of power that Josephus talks about. It's interesting that Caponius takes away their ability to administer capital crimes. That's why, when Jesus is going to be crucified, they have to go to Pilate to get permission. They don't have the right for capital punishment. It was taken away by Caponius between 6-7 and AD. What's interesting is that Jerusalem Talmud records that when that happened, the priests, the high priests and the rest put on sackcloth and ashes, and marched around Jerusalem, because they said, Woe unto us! For the scepter is departed from Judah, and the Messiah has not yet come." They knew that since the scepter departed, by their definition, they felt that the Word of God had been broken. They recalled in Genesis 49 that Jacob had predicted that the scepter would not depart from Judah until the Messiah comes. The scepter is departed. Woe unto us! The Word of God is broken. That's their view. What they didn't know was, while they were doing that, up in Nazareth, there's a young kid in the carpenter shop, and there were some that did recognize that, Simeon and Anna and some others. Levi's also important one to understand was his zeal against idolatry was, uh, was one reason they were appointed as priests. They were exempt from military duty. They were all subordinate to the sons of Aaron, which are the priests. All, not all Levi's are priests. The sons of Aaron were priests. They were teachers of the law, and they were also the judges, and they guarded the king's person. They're sort of like the Praetorian guard for the king's uh, safety in his house. So anyway, uh, that sets the stage for the next time. In the next one-hour session, we're going to try to put in broad perspective the rest of the Torah. We've spent the first four on Genesis because it's basically a foundation. Exodus will deal with the birth of the nation. Leviticus, the law of the nation. Numbers, the wilderness wanderings before they get to the land. And in Deuteronomy, which is basically three sermons by Moses, the laws are reviewed and it's wrapped up. So that's, that will be our challenge for our number five. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we just praise You for who You are. We thank You for this opportunity You've provided for us. We recognize that there are no accidents or coincidences in Your kingdom, that we're all here right now by Your divine appointment. So Father, we would just claim that commitment of Yours, that You would teach us all things. We pray, Father, that You would just reignite in each of us a new hunger, a new passion for Your Word that we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we each might become more fruitful stewards of the opportunities that you placed before us, that we might be more pleasing in your sight. So, Father, we do just commit, not just this evening, but ourselves into your hands. We just ask you, Father, you would make ever more clear what you would have of us in the days that remain as we commit ourselves into your hands without any reservation. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen.
1: You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Mister continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.